0: Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care, with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do and we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch as part of that commitment we are bringing the doctors to you i'm your host today dr john wagoner interventional
1: cardiologist practicing in olympia washington joining me on this episode is dr alejandro perez a specialist in vascular medicine with the Providence Heart Institute and medical director of the Vascular Rehabilitation Program for Peripheral Arterial Disease, as well as the medical director of the Non-Invasive Vascular Laboratory for Providence Portland Service Area Hospitals, practicing in Portland, Oregon. Today, we're discussing vascular disease, what it is, how it's diagnosed, and advancements in treatments. Hello, Dr. Perez. It's good to speak with you today.
2: Oh, I'm very happy to speak with you, too, and the audience out there.
1: Well, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do?
2: Sure. So as as you introduced, I'm a vascular medicine specialist, which just means I'm involved with the um, diagnosis and treatment of uh, vascular disorders outside of the heart. And I'm embedded within our cardiology department. But um, my task is to figure out how to help people when it's a vascular issue. That's and they need a little bit of help with either in prevention or treatment. And sometimes that involves medicines and sometimes that involves procedures.
1: Well, I'm not sure that everyone in our audience would know what a vascular system is. Could you speak a little bit to what the vascular system is and what it's responsible for in our bodies?
2: Sure, so you can broadly categorize the vascular system into arteries, which is the blood flow coming out of the heart. Uh, And that will go into the uh, brain, that'll go into the arms and into the legs. Uh, Veins, uh, so that's the blood flow coming back to the heart from the brain, from the arms, from the legs. And uh, an additional system that's sometimes not talked about is the lymphatics, which is just an extra um, carrier of fluid uh, that returns back uh, from various parts of our body, eventually going into the veins as well.
1: Very important system in the body, and a lot of the people may not be familiar with the vascular system, but but they will be very familiar with the diseases that impact the system um, because they're so common. Can you tell us uh, uh, about some of those diseases that you frequently treat?
2: Sure. Um, so we can call, we can uh, cover that in the categories that the vascular system is in. So uh, probably the most important diseases and conditions that I evaluate for have to do with the arterial system. So this may be uh, carotid artery disease. So that's the blood flow going to the brain. Uh, Could be aneurysmal disease. So enlargement of an artery. Sometimes there's a tear in the artery associated with that. That could be in many places. Sometimes head and neck. Sometimes the chest. Sometimes the abdomen. Occasionally the legs. Uh, And then peripheral artery disease. So that's the blood flow that goes into um, the various arteries. Extremity, So that could be the arms, it could be the legs. Uh, and so there's different management strategies depending on what part of the body we're talking about. So that's arterial disease. Uh, there's also venous disease. So again, um, blood flow coming back. Uh, sometimes there's a narrowing, so it doesn't let the blood flow come back. Sometimes there's a blockage, like a blood clot. Um, there can even be uh, just an uh, uh, lack of motion on a patient's body that uh doesn't let the blood flow come back the way it's supposed to um can lead to problems like wounds and pain swelling and then there's lymphatics uh lymphatics are the other set of blood but, uh, other set of vessels that return fluid and most of the time uh, if it's not going well you would see this as swelling um most people are familiar with potentially arm swelling that might have happen after uh, breast cancer, where lymph nodes are removed, uh, and um, uh, there's a breast removal or reduction. Uh, But the same thing can happen in the legs, potentially, if someone had radiation to the pelvis, or lymph nodes removed, uh, or maybe just significant um, mobility issues. So uh, depending on which of those flow issues uh, um, is problematic, we help guide what the next step might be. Sometimes it's just diagnostic and supportive, but sometimes medical and sometimes interventional.
1: Do you have any specialized testing uh, that you do to determine whether people have arterial, venous, or lymphatic disease?
2: Sure. So uh, we can, again, cover those in broad categories. So uh, for carotid disease, this may be uh, maybe a primary care doctor picked up, incidentally, a funny sound at the neck. We call that a brui. So usually the next step would be a carotid duplex. If there's a question about the findings, we may get an MRA, so MRI with angiography type pictures or cta ct scan with angiography pictures then ultimately depending on whether someone needs a procedure there may be even be um, actual uh, angiography catheter based angiography that's for the neck for the chest and abdomen uh, usually would be some sort of imaging study when we can we try to use ultrasounds so for example the chest can be evaluated with an echocardiogram the abdomen can be evaluated with ultrasound Sometimes the measurements are not quite clear. So, some, so then we would get, again, a CT scan or MRI to clarify. And then if there's a consideration for intervention, then you would do a catheter-based angiography. Uh, for the legs, uh, we often start with a screening ABI, which is an ankle brachial index, which is a way to take a pressure of an ankle and you compare it to the pressure in the arm. You assume that the arm pressures are very close to the heart, so that's kind of your control, meaning what you would expect if things are normal. And then if there's a change by the time uh, it gets to the to the limb, so like the ankle, if the pressure is half of what it is supposed to be, then that tells you, oh, uh, there may be some arterial disease there. So that's where we start. And then we may get more uh, detailed investigations. So an arterial duplex would give us better clarity as to where there's a blockage, again, a CT or MR a study would give us more information. And then ultimately if someone really does need a procedure, we would do catheter-based angiography with the aim to actually fix it at the time if we can. Yeah, so that's for the arterials. There's a whole other set of testing that we would do for the veins. Uh, Typically that is, we start with ultrasound. If we can image, uh, if there's a concern about an arm clot or arm blockage of a vein, you start with an ultrasound, look at the waveforms, do you see an obstruction? Do you see a clot? Same thing for the legs. Do you see an obstruction? Do you see a clot? Uh, Sometimes the, the problem is very central. So then we, again, use these other modalities, CT or MR. And then if you think there's a fixable problem, you may go to catheter-based venography to actually image the central circulation with the aim to actually improving the flow. Um, again, depending on what the problem is, sometimes you can do, if it's a clot, you can do um, catheter-based uh, things to break up clot. If there's a narrowing, you could use an a angioplasty or stent to open up a blood flow. Um, depending on the problem, that is how we determine what we do for treatment. Um, But those are the basic diagnostic tests that we use for uh, vascular uh, disease, whether it's arterial or venous. For lymphatics, it's usually a clinical diagnosis, but there is a diagnostic test called lymphocentigraphy, uh, which does use a type of radiation uh, to diagnose. And what what it involves is just putting a needle in some um, extremity that we think is involved, like the foot. And you watch the flow as it goes centrally and see if there's a delay compared to the other side or is there a focal area that things concentrate. But most of the time, that's not needed to make that diagnosis. But it is available if there's a question as to the diagnosis.
1: Well, you alluded to some of the symptoms that people can have when they have a disorder of their vascular system. You mentioned some swelling and stuff like that. Are there other symptoms that people be, it might it might indicate that somebody had vascular disease that they might not be aware of?
2: Sure. So the symptoms we can classify, again, whether we're talking about or venous, as um, uh, it helps to to frame the question that way. So if it's a venous or lymphatic concern, the the easiest symptom that a patient may notice is swelling. Um, But swelling can be caused from lack of mobility, sleeping in a different position, uh, but certainly obstruction. And so someone would say, I have swelling um, or notice swelling, they may start to have discoloration to their legs and they'll notice a darkening to their ankle and it's not a tan. And it's, it's from accumulation of, uh, kind of deposits, the leftover products of blood that's been hanging around and pooling at their ankles for months to years. And then the, the worst case scenario is when people, uh, present with, uh, wounds that are not healing, uh, and, that's when the venous hypertension, the the pressure on the skin has gotten to the point that the skin is now irritated, and that doesn't uh, require more advanced modalities. Not only to help them feel better, but to heal them, um, requiring uh, more compression than normal, maybe an interventional strategy to treat refluxing veins. Um, but that would be uh, the vascular system uh, symptoms in relation to the veins in the legs. If there's a symptom of the arteries in the legs, the most common classical description is something called claudication, which uh, just means uh, someone having problems with walking. So if somebody gives a story of a reproducible leg pain, when uh, they walk, I walk a half a block, I walk a block, and I have to stop because my calf is hurting. It gets better after a few minutes of rest, and then I can go again, and then it comes right back. Or I can walk at a casual pace, doctor, but now Whenever I try to walk fast or I try to go up a hill or some steps, now my calf is bothering me. That's a classic description of claudication. And so again, we would start with a screening test like an ankle brachial index, but we may involve more diagnostic studies uh, depending on their symptoms. The tricky thing is not everybody presents with a classic description of claudication. Uh, Maybe they have back issues or breathing issues and they never get to walk to that distance where they would have symptoms. So then we have to Look for other clues, like are they losing hair on their feet? Are they are their extremities much cooler than we would expect? Do they have a wound for an unexplained reason? Um, uh, because some patients even have neuropathy, uh, meaning they don't have the ability to notice pain below their knee. So they don't notice that they're having leg pain because their, their system of pain is not intact. And so they maybe just notice fatigue or some discomfort or weakness. Uh, so these are all things that we have to have our radar wide open to 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 listen uh and and try to guide the patients in regards to what what is actually happening to them and so that we can help them um both feel better and and get better. So sometimes some very dramatic symptoms that people can be
1: having and uh without really knowing. Uh but I I know from my practice of medicine as well that there sometimes are can be very severe, even life-threatening um, vascular diseases that are completely asymptomatic. Like, and I'm speaking to like a, an abdominal aortic aneurysm or a uh, severe carotid artery disease that doesn't manifest until there's a crisis sort of situation as as well. So do you recommend screening for those kinds of diseases?
2: So actually there there is well-established data for certain groups to do screening. So if, um, a man has a smoking history, typically more than one year or 100 cigarettes, and they're between the ages of 65 and 75, there's pretty good data that if you do at least a one-time screening sometime between that uh, that time span of 65 to 75, that you will pick up aneurysms that do, that do affect that patient's uh, overall health, their longevity improves their lives. For other groups, it is less clear, but most people feel comfortable that if a patient has a family history, a strong family history of aneurysmal disease, that that might be a reason why you might screen a woman with those same risk factors. Um, for carotid disease, it has been a, a little less uh, clear as to whether routine screening in the average population uh, saves lives. But certainly, uh, it is worth doing a comprehensive exam, at least on an initial visit. Uh, in my practice, I, I I listen to all um, uh, vascular groups. So that includes the neck, the uh, of course heart uh, and then abdomen and femoral to see, do I hear a funny sound that I didn't expect? Is the funny sound asymmetric? Is there a change in uh, uh, pulsatility? But to answer the question directly there, it's unclear whether uh, checking everybody for carotid disease saves lives. But if we find it, we have good tools to manage it. Uh, the good news is medical management has improved over time, so that that gives patients a, a, a lot more options than we had in the past. But the good news is also that there are a lot better interventional strategies than we had in the past. As far as peripheral artery disease, that also has been uh, something that has been looked at multiple t- um, multiple times. Um, many of your uh, the audience may be familiar with the United States Preventive services task force and they've looked at this question do we benefit patients to do routine screening for peripheral artery disease and in the general population it just it's been difficult to sh- demonstrate that but certainly if somebody has symptoms then we're it's worth investigating if somebody has a non-healing wound that's worth investigating if somebody has a change in their mobility that's worth investigating but If someone's totally healthy and has no medical problems, should they be checked for peripheral artery disease? I I think at that point you're just uh, reassuring somebody, but I can't tell someone that they're going to be healthier for getting that checked out.
1: That's great. And you, you alluded to, um, you know, a, a very common thing that uh, any physician can do with a stethoscope is listening at the carotid arteries, listening at the abdomen, listening for what you, you called a brui, which I can tell the audience is a, a whooshing sound that you can hear with your stethoscope as the blood's trying to go through kind of a tight area that, that might be blocked with plaque. And, and that's a great initial sort of scan for almost any patient that might be in a cardiovascular, um, you know, office of some kind. Um, uh, what other conditions can vascular disease lead to as well?
2: Well, I think the one maybe his members are most familiar with are clotting, um, uh, deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism. These are usually acute presentations, meaning they happen all of a sudden. People are having problems with breathing and they don't know why or chest pain. And it's not necessarily a heart attack. It's that there, there's not enough blood flow uh, going from, into their pulmonary artery to get oxygenation. Or someone wakes up uh, with acute swelling in just one leg, or they're on a long trip, maybe overseas, or just a long car ride, and the one, uh, it's 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 easy to pick up when it's just one leg. It's a little bit you have to dive into it when it's both legs, but that would be the typical presentation of of um, kind of an urgent, if not emergent, situation where somebody has a change that's that's rapid. Uh, and sometimes there's pain, sometimes there's swelling, but there are some times where people are asymptomatic. And so it's, it's not unless some, a family member picks it up or somebody's uh, kind of looking at them and say, Hey, by the way, did you realize that, you know, one leg is swollen and the other one's not, Oh, you know, I hadn't noticed that. And that, that prompts the further investigation. Uh, but those are the kind of urgent venous situations that warrant further investigation. And of course, treatment.
1: Well, I think a lot of people know, uh, when I talk to patients and stuff, they know that a blood clot can be a life-threatening situation in many contexts, Um, and so, and you alluded to that in the, in the veins as well, so can you tell, just maybe briefly, like, what, what causes blood clots in the venous system and, and arterial system, and, and what advancements in treatment are available uh, to help uh, patients that are at risk for those blood clots?
2: Sure. So yes, you're correct. Uh, Blood clots can happen in both the arterial and venous setting. They have slightly different mechanisms. Venous clots typically occur more in the setting of venous blood pooling. So that's why it would not be uncommon for someone to give a history of prolonged travel or sitting for long periods of time. So that's uh, the easiest way to think of it as uh, blood is a liquid, but if it's let to sit for too long, it could congeal. And so that essentially may happen to cause a vein clot. And then if there's a clot in an extremity and it's in a large vein up to half the time, it could break off and then go into a lung vessel and that's called a pulmonary embolism. And so that's not just a swelling situation. Now, now you're having a breathing issue or chest pain issue, and that could be uh, something that could be quite consequential to someone's health if they're not treated and evaluated uh, quickly. Uh, but that, those would be, uh, kind of the mechanisms that that occurs in, um, illness can make, bring it on, uh, a current topic, um, depending on when someone's listening to this is, uh, COVID-19, uh, we know that if somebody has, uh, been infected with COVID-19 and they're in the hospital, they're more likely to have a blood clot. And we know that even if you have COVID-19 and you don't get hospitalized, you could end up with a blood clot due to that, and so we know that uh, illnesses just cause an inflammatory response. You're not as active as well, um, so uh, so yes, so those are kind of uh, risk factors for these things. Uh, from a venous side, from an arterial side, um, uh, the more co- uh, these are probably less common uh, in presentation, but can still happen. Um, risk factors for that include if somebody has had a um, a recent um uh manipulation in an artery. So maybe they had a procedure and now that artery flow was disturbed. Uh sometimes cancer can cause a uh, blood clots in an artery. Uh sometimes clots form somewhere else, like atrial fibrillation, they may form in the heart, and then it travels to other places. Um and then the, the very same mechanism that happens when someone has a heart attack where there's a plaque, uh, so something that's uh, uh disturbed already and in, in a blood vessel now gets irritated and so now forms a clot in that area that may break off or it may just cause a blockage in that space that can happen in a carotid artery but uh so that could cause a stroke uh, but it can happen in other arteries of the body as well
1: i think as we've explored vascular disease today or, or the vascular system we we're learning that it's very very complex and that arteries are not the same as veins which are not the same as lymphatics although they have similar function they're very different organs so this is kind of a complicated question but i was kind of wondering if you could speak to like the common causes of vascular disease knowing that it's going to be many different things i suppose
2: sure so let's talk about causes of vascular disease again in those broad categories so uh for arterial um the causes are very Uh, strongly overlapping with cardiovascular disease in general so um, statistically uh, people who are diabetic and especially if it's uncontrolled diabetes are more likely to have arterial disease Uh, someone has a smoking history that also increases the risk unfortunately just simply aging Uh, Age over 65 is a risk factor for development. It's just a plumbing issue. And so sometimes the plumbing starts to show its wear and tear. There are other disorders uh, that are less strongly but still uh, associated, which includes chronic kidney disease, uh, inflammatory conditions, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis or um, just chronic uh, ulcerative colitis, uh, chronic inflammation. Um, Sometimes you can pick that up by inflammatory markers like CRP, C-reactive protein. Um, so those are the main risk factors for developing, uh, peripheral artery disease, uh, and that can include in the carotid arteries, in the leg arteries, but the good news is some of this is modifiable. So you can, if people know their risk factors, um, whether it's something as simple as controlling their blood pressure, controlling their weight, uh, exercising that you can make an impact in those, um, in those later years. So that's uh, that. Yeah. yeah. So, so those are the risk factors for, um, arterial disease. Got it. Yeah.
1: And cholesterol too. I'll throw that in as well. Oh,
2: sure. I did. Uh, I didn't mention that. Yes. And, and the good news is there, uh, cholesterol is a risk factor and there are now more agents than we have ever had before to improve the management of that. Um, and, and say, in studies 20 years ago, when people would look at interventions, the only, the only thing we knew to give patients was aspirin. Uh, but now we know that blood pressure control and cholesterol control plays a big role. And of course, most of us are familiar with the statin medications, but we also have agents that can lower the cholesterol more, like ezetimibe. And then newer agents on the market, uh, that they're called PCSK9 inhibitors. These are injectable medications that Uh, when either you cannot reach your goal with a statin medication, or people are intolerant of statin medications, which happens, uh, that you have other tools that can not just lower the cholesterol, which is important, but the most important thing is you're lowering the risk for heart attack you're lowering the risk for stroke. You're actually helping people live longer by treating those modifiable uh, conditions. Uh, So uh, it's an exciting time because there are uh, more options for patients than we had before. Yeah. So that's so that's main the main uh, targets for uh, our risk factors for arterial disease development. Uh, for venous disease, uh, it's actually quite common for people to have some mild manifestation at, that they may be unaware of. But uh, you can broadly categorize it as uh, swelling disorders, uh, sometimes varicose veins. Uh, of course, clots we've talked about briefly. Uh, the things that make one at, more at risk to develop these venous-type disorders are, um, for both men and women, is uh, excess weight. Uh, having jobs where you stand for long periods of time. So think of a hairdresser or a bank teller. Uh, even though they're on their feet, if someone tells me, I'm on my feet a lot, Doc, if they're if they're walking you know, they're activating their calf pump, uh, but if they're mainly standing, uh, so again, uh, a hair, typical hairdresser, they take two steps to the left, they take two steps to the right, but essentially they're in a box and they're working on each customer and they're just standing. And so, um, uh, so those are risk factors, things that are specific to women is uh, childbirth. Uh, so just having, uh, multiple pregnancies, uh, increases the risk, um, uh, for a uh, venous disease, uh, and. Uh, unfortunately, just again, aging, uh, it's plumbing. So uh, the older we are, uh, the more likely we are to develop some veins that start to not act the way they should. And family history. Uh, so I, I do uh, ask that when someone's presenting, um, and you very commonly will get a history of a parent or a sibling that also has venous problems. Uh, and that's uh, because there's probably some genetic component, maybe the number of vein valves that are inherited, uh, that uh, predispose somebody uh, in specific families uh, to uh, to develop venous disease earlier in age than in other um, other families. Uh, so that's for venous risk factors. Uh, for lymphatics, uh, I, I briefly touched upon this, but cancer can increase the risk for lymphedema, specifically if there has been a removal of a lymph node or um, radiation of Lymph nodes uh, that can damage the 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 healthy lymphatics uh, as part of the cancer treatment, and now they don't work as well so they don't drain as well later in life. Uh, but other things can cause lymphedema too uh, a very bad infection uh, could do could lead that long term. Um, a very common presentation i I see is unfortunately people who are very um, excess in weight can develop lymphedema secondary to morbid obesity as well as uh, mobility issues. People can develop lymphedema just from not being able to move their limb. And so one of the the tricks your body has to get fluid out of the leg is this mechanism called the physiologic calf pump, where uh, if you take a a normal step, you put your heel down, you put your weight on the ball of your foot, and you squeeze, and that's what a normal gait, what a normal stride uh, involves. Some people can't do that. Uh, maybe they've had a fracture, maybe they've had a fusion, uh, maybe they have multiple sclerosis or a stroke, and so now their limb doesn't move the way it's supposed to, and so now they get chronic swelling, and maybe their veins are fine. Uh, it's just that they can no longer help the veins in the normal way or help their lymphatics in their normal way, and now they have chronic swelling, and it and it can become lymphedema. Fascinating. Um,
1: and you, and you alluded to the genetic component of, of the arterial uh, or the venous system. And, and I also say that there's a genetic component also for the arterial system as well that uh, we see. It's confluent also with a lot of cardiac disease, I know. So, um, uh,
2: yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. And, j- and just to speak to that, uh, uh, correct, that uh, just like uh, you have families where you, you, you can see every generation has had a heart attack at an early age. But uh, the good news is, if someone is aware of their risk factors, there are many people now who will essentially out uh, outdo their genetics uh, just by being uh, mindful of those risk factors. And so that heart attack doesn't have to happen before age fifty that uh, there is some power that we can give to our patients to not have to follow that track, knowing that we um that we have something that we could do for them to to not. Uh, keep following in in those uh, bad consequences. Yeah, and, and want to reiterate the the importance of smoking, uh, not smoking
1: as well, and, and oh, how, of course how how bad smoking you know what what damage it does to the vascular system and and how much improvement people can have in their symptoms, and their risk when they when they quit smoking as well. So, do we? Uh, can, yeah, do we consider vascular disease? A curable sort of thing can can we reverse it if if we develop vascular disease
2: so i i think that you can answer two two ways can one is can you make the symptoms that people are presenting it uh presenting with can you make those symptoms uh go away um uh, so let's go to again the example of peripheral artery disease if someone has the symptom of uh leg pain with walking uh if somebody uh is found to have a culprit uh artery that is impacting the blood flow going into the legs Uh, there are many ways to treat it there's exercise strategies that you can help somebody walk better if that was their complaint i have many patients who the first day they see me they think we're going to only talk about procedures and years later we still haven't done a procedure because they got better with just walking strategies so you could treat their symptoms. Uh, there's a medication called Cilostazole that's been FDA approved to help with claudication with leg pain with walking. And there are some patients that that addition of medication has made it so that now they don't have that complaint of leg pain with walking. But ultimately, some people do need to have the artery treated so that it is now letting enough blood flow go down all the way to their lower leg so that they don't have that pain with walking. And so uh, we have strategies, both endovascular and uh, surgical to help patients with that and so those all um, help either resolve or significantly improve the symptoms that they came in with now the question is can you go back can you reverse there have been some data to show that uh, mainly the literature is through the the cardiac world, but there are the the medications we give people like the statins, if you can, uh, and maybe also PCSK9 inhibitors, that if you can aggressively lower people's cholesterol, that there have been some preliminary data that plaque, the stuff that builds up in the arteries, the bad stuff, can regress, that you can decrease the volume. And so there's hope that if we do the right things, both doctors and patients, together, that actually some of this could potentially be reversible. We've seen this in other fields. Um, Patients who've had diabetes, and then they have gastric bypass, and then they significantly lose weight, their diabetes can regress. Okay. And so there's uh, examples in other fields that we can, in some ways, set the clock back. Now the body doesn't forget, it's still there. Uh, But But we can both uh, make the symptoms better, but also maybe even make the person better overall in their health, so that going forward, they're still in a better place.
1: Yeah, and I will attest, as a cardiologist, I've seen you know, just massive leaps in the field of, of both our medical treatments and our, uh, and also your surgical and, and interventional techniques that you do as well to treat vascular disease and, and how much more we can do now than we could, you know, when I started training, you know, many years ago. So uh, it's remarkable. Um, You know, do, uh, uh, I've heard before that there's kind of a link to, between stress and vascular disease. Is that something that, uh, that you can, Uh,
2: confirm? Yeah, so there has been observational data. If you do a a simple question, do you feel stressed as a yes or no question? People who answer yes, actually do have more health problems, uh, which is the cause, which is, you know, chicken or the egg. I I think we acknowledge that uh, inflammation is bad for people's health and stress is just one version of that. Uh, so, uh, So in general, uh, things that modify stress probably are going to also lower your risk factor for developing cardiovascular complications. So whether that's sleeping better, whether that uh, is exercising, um, whether that's learning to um, to be more mindful about one's emotions and how you manage one's emotions. Okay, I think all of that uh, has some impact. It may be more indirect. Okay, sleeping lowers stress. It helps you have uh, better weight management. Um, having um, uh, better mindfulness about emotions may lower your blood pressure, and that has longer-term consequences for your cardiovascular health. Um, you know, all these things are still related, and so yes, I think stress management will, in some in some ways, lead to better management of your cardiovascular health, including specifically the vascular. Um, Domain.
1: You know, that's a couple of times you've mentioned exercise as well, and, you know, b- both with patients that have established vascular disease with symptoms and, and even as now with prevention. Is there a certain type of workout or exercise protocol that you recommend for your patients to help manage vascular disease and its symptoms?
2: Yes. So uh, for, I can answer that question in regards to exercise and vascular disease in two realms. Uh, one is uh, peripheral artery disease. So there are patients who come into the office saying, Doc, I just can't walk the way I want. It hurts. And so one of the treatment strategies we offer them is something called supervised exercise therapy. In our hospital, we call it vascular rehab. But what that is, is an exercise program where you have a patient walk for 45 minutes to an hour, uh, three times a week. If it's done through the hospital, it's done on a treadmill, but some patients do this at home through their local uh, community track or if they have a treadmill at home. And what we tell them to do is actually walk until they have discomfort. And if they have discomfort in their calf to not stop, they can keep going until they have at least a moderate amount of discomfort. They come up with their own internal scale for what that might be. And then when they have that moderate discomfort, they can stop and then they rest. And when that discomfort goes away, they get back on it, uh, the treadmill or that walking. And they do that till they've gotten to 45 minutes to 60 minutes of walking, resting, walking, resting. And if they do that three times a week, this has been studied, that people can actually improve their walking uh, in some ways as much as if somebody had gotten a procedure to improve their walking. And these um, studies have been found uh, both in hospital-based and increasingly there is some community-based programs that if people are, are given those instructions, you can see good outcomes as well. We have to be mindful that not everybody has access to come into a hospital three times a week. Some people uh, need to be able to have a management uh, program that they could do at home. But the good news is exercise can help the symptoms that they came in with. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to make a picture look prettier on a study. We're trying to give people back their lives and their mobility and their capacity to exercise. So that that really does help people. Now, for venous disease... Uh, the typical presentation I might see is uh, someone who has a venous congestion either causing uh, discomfort or swelling or uh, more noticeable with um, ulcerations or just prominent veins. And exercise uh, does help if they're able to utilize that calf pump function. So that usually would involve some sort of exercise where they move their 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 foot up and down. So kind of like I describe it as like pushing on a brake pedal. And if they're able to do exercises that do that, whether it's a bicycle or treadmill or just putting their leg up in the air and squeezing, uh, those have been shown to help uh, stimulate their venous circulation. And if somebody has a wound, it actually has shown to help heal their wounds if they just do those exercises uh, in addition to good medical care and wound care. But uh, so these can help both the arterial side and both the venous side and the venous side as well.
1: It's remarkable. I, you and I know in our training that, um, you know, the, 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 body's body's, you know, remarkable, uh, recuperative of capacity and the ability to form like, you know, that it, its own bypasses around tight blockages and stuff. And it's, you know, stimulated by that exercise that we, we recommend.
2: That's right. How,
1: how about diets? Are, are there diets that, that you recommend to your patients to decrease the risk of developing vascular disease?
2: Um, so. I unfortunately often see patients once they have developed arterial disease of some sort, but I I do have the occasion to have a healthy young person who's just interested in knowing how to prevent it. (laughs) For most people, um, I would generally advocate for a well-balanced diet. A Mediterranean diet is a good starting point. Uh... a a diet that is rich in fiber and basically vegetables, you know, it makes us sound kind of boring, I know, but people can find things that are uh, healthy for them with what they already do. Almost all of us could probably reduce the amount of refined sugars and carbohydrates that we have in our diet. Um, Almost all of us can have a better way of approaching our eating habits, perhaps not snacking in the late evening hours, uh, maybe re- reducing the amount of salt that we have in our in our food by not adding it without tasting the food. These are simple things that everybody can do uh, and potentially will have long-term gains uh, for cardiovascular health, whether that helps to reduce the blood pressure, helps to prevent the onset of diabetes, uh, helps to control the weight. Uh, all of these are things that are all pointing us in the right direction to, to better health.
1: Are there any new technologies that are coming down the pike that uh, are helping you to treat vascular disease more effectively?
2: So, yes, uh, there are new technologies, both from the medical and interventional side. From the medical, there is now an understanding of something uh, uh, called uh, the dual um, inhibition pathway. So, Traditionally, for arterial disease, we would use anti-platelet therapy. So this would be what people know of as aspirin and then other things like clopidogrel uh, that people might get after a stent. Um, but there is an, another class of medications that we use uh, in the venous world and to some extent for atrial fibrillation. Uh, and these would be medications that uh, are direct thrombin inhibitors or something that acts in the coagulation cascade. So this would be like a medication like rivaroxaban, where we now know that if you add a low dose version of it, you can not have an increase in significant bleeding, but now have a uh, a better reduction in heart attack, stroke, and again, longevity. And then we do have increasingly more medications to control cholesterol. I mentioned earlier, PCSK9 inhibitors, we've had uh, uh, them on the market now for a few years. uh, And there are even more coming down. There are some that are twice a month injections. Now we have some that you can only you only have to give twice a year. And so for the for the the purpose of, of adherence and being someone actually being able to take it, that's, that's a game changer when someone uh, can just give themselves uh, something twice a year, uh, that, that gives us a much more long-standing longstanding uh, effect. So that's from the medication side. There are better procedures now to manage these vascular disorders. For the peripheral world, we've now had, uh, we continue to have innovations in endovascular technology, but even in traditional surgery, Now we have transcarotid artery vascularization. And whereas the traditional surgeries, let's say for carotid disease, would uh, speak to about a 3% chance of stroke at the time of surgery, the initial trials for this other technique called transcarotid artery vascularization or TCAR, uh, they're getting close to 1% uh, incidence of a a complication like a stroke. And so now these still will need bearing out in the real world and long-term, but this gives people hope that whether you choose a medical strategy Uh, which uh, manages the cholesterol, the blood pressure and the right antiplatelets that someone who has carotid disease can do quite well. Uh, But if someone does need a procedure, we now have procedures that also have very uh, much lower risk and we hope may be a better option for people in the future uh, consistently if they need it. Uh, There are also now more and more endovascular procedures being offered for abdominal aortic aneurysm. When I Uh, probably first entered into the field of medicine, uh, there were still quite a bit of open aortic surgeries being done. Now, most of them are done from an endovascular perspective, and the devices are getting much better and safer for patients. Um, So there are still things coming down, uh, but we're already seeing them in practice now. And now we're just seeing a further evolution of those.
1: Sounds like a lot of real hope that you can communicate to your patients with vascular disease, uh, of things coming down the pike and, and even technologies that are available even today. Um, I I, I think I'm going to ask you a question I know the answer to, but so are you saying that somebody with uh, a patient that has vascular disease can go on to live a normal life?
2: Uh, Yes, I am saying that. The, the tricky component uh, of this is identifying when someone has these risk factors, to modify these risk factors. One unfortunate concern is that, let's take the example of peripheral artery disease. When people have done uh, registry analysis, that means people are kind of observed in different uh, trials. People who have peripheral artery disease have traditionally had worse cardiovascular outcomes than people who have identified cardiac disease. And so, so that sounds odd. Someone who has a known heart problem does better than somebody who has a known leg problem and how is that and we think the reason is we have traditionally had a better handle on how to manage cardiac disease Uh, so somebody comes into the hospital with a symptomatic arterial disorder that we're going to call the heart they're going to leave with a bunch of new medications, antiplatelet, blood pressure control, smoking cessation, cardiac rehab, close follow-up, and of course, maybe a procedure. Um, but if somebody comes into the hospital with an asymptomatic arterial vent, but we're going to call it in the leg, they may get the revascularization, but they may not get the same intensity of cholesterol management, blood pressure management, close follow-up, smoking cessation. And so that's on the medical community to do a better job of managing those things. But what we do know is, is when we do manage those, we can improve the outcomes. And so that's the hope, that uh, knowing that these people are at risk for these bad outcomes, to uh, manage it uh, and manage it well. And that's, I think, the take home message for those audience members that are practitioners to do our part uh, and partner with our patients to improve those outcomes because we can make a difference
1: you covered a lot of ground today, and you've given a lot of great information. I really thank you for that. Is there anything else about today's topic of vascular disease that you want to make sure our listeners know that we haven't already discussed?
2: Uh, yes. Uh, this is uh, more recent uh, data. Uh, so there was a recent observational publication uh, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, May 2022, where they looked at people with very severe carotid disease, greater than 70%. And this was not meant to see which thing is better or which which device or which medication, but they just wanted to see what what happens if you treat people well, and do they have something bad happen to them? And it turns out that if you treat people well, meaning they are given the right medications that we've been discussing—the antiplatelets, the blood pressure medicines, the um, cholesterol medicines—that the incidence of stroke was something like a fraction of a percent, little under one percent per year, and that is basically what we were seeing in clinical trials when people were doing actual procedures to try to reduce the chance of stroke. And so the conversations I have in my clinic are that if we do the right thing, if we treat you medically, that is the treatment for you that you may choose and you will do just fine. And so that gives people uh, kind of a peace of mind that if they are able to control their risk factors, that they can live a healthy life and they can move on and enjoy their life. And so that, that's the ultimate message here.
1: That's a, a, the same message I'm giving to my patients as well. A lot of them come into my clinic with expectations that we're going to do lots and lots of testing, routine stress testing, and that sort of thing, and I'm really having that conversation about what it's really about treating those risk factors up front. That's where the, the whole paradigm of medicine is shifting, and it's even safer for the patient, and they live longer and live better with that, with that strategy. So, well, thank you, Dr. Perez. This has been a great um, a great discussion today and I thank
0: you for for all of that information. Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on heart matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit bostonscientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening, and remember at Providence, we see the life in you.